Hey, Rockheads, if you couldn't make it to London this year for NSBCon, the very first conference all about in-service bus, we got some good news. NSBCon's coming to New York City September 29th and 30th. Two full days of sessions on distributed systems development from top speakers like Udi Dahan, Oranini, Ted Neward, and .NET Rocks is going to be there too. So join Richard and me at NSBCon and take your development skills to a whole new level. Go to nsbconnyc.com and register today. .NET Rocks, episode 1039, with guest Trevin Hetzel. Recorded Thursday, September 11th, 2014. Hey, 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 Stadnet Rocks, Carl and Richard here for you again. Howdy. What's up, my friend? I made myself a little, you know, talk about luxury, smoked brisket hash for breakfast this morning. You know, you shouldn't smoke hash. <laughs> you just shouldn't. <laughs> you just shouldn't. Just, just say no. I took my little daughter to a barbecue place last night and I said, what do you want? She looked at me, she said, I don't know, what do you usually get? And I said, burnt ends. She said, great. <laughs> so she had burnt ends. And, uh, you know, the first bite was like, mm, I think I'm going to eat my mac and cheese. <laughs> burnt ends is definitely a thing. I love burnt ends. I got a pastrami currently sort of marinating in its rub oh. to be smoked tomorrow for service on Saturday. You're making me hungry. Let's roll the music before I eat something. Meat. And I'd just like to say for the record that I really enjoy being married to a vegan and making lots of beef. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the little ways we get back at each the other. The little ways. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, I'm doing something a little bit different today. As you know, on the on the PC anyway, trying to capture video is just kind of a nightmare. Like it, the whole thing wasn't meant, the, the architecture wasn't meant for video capture. No, not at all. You know, and so most of the stuff that you can buy off the shelf has like, you know, RCA inputs or maybe S-Video input if you're lucky. Yeah, which is worthless. An HDMI card, you know, that you can run on Windows and stuff with an HDMI input. Mm -hmm. Good luck. I mean, I've tried them, you know, I've even tried the ones that are supposed to work and, and just, I don't know, they just don't, maybe it's just me, but doesn't seem like a good fit. Just to be able to do a raw capture off of the video feed. Well, yeah, you know, and I guess I don't, I don't know what the problem is because there's certainly a bandwidth to do that in the bus and there's plenty of, I don't know if it's an architecture thing or it's just not a lot of people doing it. I don't know. But I bought a MacBook Pro. Yeah. And I got this thing from blackmagicdesign.com called the Intensity Extreme. <laughs> nice name. And get this, I always wanted to do a, a shortened URL like this, tinyurl.com slash bmintensity. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to talk about it. I'm just going to let it go. It's the name of the product, Black Magic Intensity. I'm, I'm walking right by that. I'm not uh, talking saying. about it. Just saying. That's the name of the product. I okay, shortened okay. it, right? BM Intensity. <laughs> yeah. So it, I got the extreme version. So this is a Thunderbolt interface to your MacBook Pro or whatever, nice. your Mac. And it has HDMI in and HDMI out. So you can easily plug a camera in. Or on a previous show, I told you about the Roland Video Switcher. Yeah, yeah. So you can plug four cameras into that and uh, then fade, you know, and, and switch between shots. So you can yeah. do shot calling just like the pros do. And it's all HDMI. So uh, so that's that's what I got it for. I got it to do streaming with a four-camera shoot. Cool. Yeah. And I'm going to be cutting my teeth with it at uh, FalafelCon. Yeah. Streaming this, actually not with the switcher, but with the Blackmagic in the MacBook. And also at uh, Dev Intersection, we're going to be streaming there. All right. Well, we get a chance to really exercise this stuff. It'll be fun. going to be a lot of fun. Busy, busy, busy. That's what I got. Tinyurl.com slash BM Intensity. BM Intensity. Yep. Isn't that like uh, one of those Fitbit measurements? <laughs> Here, put this thing on. <laughs> <laughs> Who's talking to us, my friend? Oh, my goodness. I grabbed a comment off of show 982. And that's the show we did at uh, Dev Intersection with Doug Crockford, if you recall. Yeah. And uh, Andrew Fremantle had this great comment. He says, thanks, Richard Carl, and of course, Doug Crockford. Yep. I've been a long-time listener, the pre-100 days, Ooh. and I've often thought of commenting, if only for a chance to win a coveted DNR mug. So here goes. 
And guess what? He pulled it off. Yeah. I really enjoy these shows that discuss a wider industry of software development and aren't afraid to question the status quo. While Douglas expresses his concern about the age and unsuitability of our current popular languages, I wonder if there are any movements, languages, or hardware systems that exist today or are planned that we can get behind as advocates, supporters, or early adopters to help improve our industry for tomorrow's developers. Hmm. I can't tell you how much your shows have helped me keep my skills and knowledge sharp over the years. I've lost count of the times I've heard about some product or approach and then been able to use it to solve a problem at work, often months later. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Yeah. And I read this comment because I think today's show is going to be an interesting thought about writing less code and doing more sort of declarative structures because I think that's part of it. You know, if we're really looking towards more modern language ideas, it's about less code. Mm. And preferably terser codes. So right. That, you know, it's easy to see what the intent was. There's less plumbing around it and so on. Is that going to be a whole new language or more of a new way of writing? You know, just the same way that we started to write functional code in C sharp. Mm-hmm. Just sort of speaks to maybe it's not the language. It's how we're using it. It's the issue. Yeah. And with all the crazy stuff we've seen going on with C sharp, and we've done a bunch of shows around that, I just don't see that language going away. No, not at all. Less code, more thought. More thought. So, Andrew, thanks so much for your comment. .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. By the way, the MacBook Pro came with everything but a mouse. (laughs) There's no mouse in the box. Why would you need a mouse? Who needs a mouse? There's no touchscreen on it either. No, that's right. Yeah, it's it's a laptop. Uh, well, anyway, that brings us to our guest. Our esteemed guest today is Trevin Hetzel. He's a front-end developer with a focus on designing and building scalable, responsive sites. A big passion of his is to push the perceived limits of CSS to do things a lot of developers use JavaScript for, things like click events. Trevin works remotely from Iowa at Append2 as a visual design engineer, helping enterprise-level companies create responsive sites. On top of front-end development, his roots lie in user interface design, and he still enjoys throwing pixels around in Photoshop. Outside the web world, Trevin enjoys spending time with his wife and two young boys reading and racing dirt bikes. Sounds lovely. Trevin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, guys. So anytime we talk about Using CSS as a replacement for programming, our entire audience goes, (laughs) why would you do that? I I heard them out there. They're listening right now. They're like, oh, God. But uh, so you you may be, uh, you you have a chance to change minds and change lives today here, Trevin. And I (laughs) hope you pull it off. (laughs) Yeah, well. I guess I should start by saying we're not replacing JavaScript. Um, Oh, sure. You know, obviously JavaScript has its plenty of uses for it. Um, but, but you like to push CSS to its limits. Yeah, I've kind of. I, I, first of all, I work with you know amazing guys here at Append2, and they. Um, one of the guys, Andy, uh, that was here, he left a few months ago, and he he kind of started me off on this track where, um, you know, we work with a lot of JavaScript engineers too, mm-hmm. and. You know, when they come to a problem, a lot of times, you know, they just say, oh, you know, let's just do that with JavaScript just because that's what they're familiar with, you know. Um, But what Andy tried to do was like, no, wait a minute. You know, he kind of took a step back and said, you know, this can actually be done with CSS, believe it or not. And so he kind of started me off on the track and I've been just kind of pursuing, you know, different ways that I can eliminate JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Um, and surprisingly, I found that there's a lot of things you can actually do with native CSS that, you know, sometimes you go, even goes back to IE8 um, that you don't need JavaScript for. And uh, obviously, click events, like, like you mentioned, that's that's the big thing that CSS lacks, you know, because it's, it's a styling language, so it doesn't have any, mm. you know, it doesn't do things. It just kind of styles things, whereas, you know, you rely on the JavaScript to to say, hey, click this, do this. Yeah. See, I always thought that's what CSS was for. It was to style. That's why it was called a style sheet. Well, but you know what's interesting about this is that I think any any of our developer audience would uh, agree that doing things declaratively is good. I mean, that's why we liked XAML, you know, because we could we could declare stuff in the markup and uh, and not have to program it. And so, I mean, CSS is just the visual extension of that. It's the styles portion of, of XAML, if you think of it that way. You know, if I'm talking to our, our Windows developers out there who may not get into CSS so much. 
you know, so, so actually uh, being declarative about things is good. It's just that I think that CSS lacks, what should I say, an intuitive design. You know, it's very syntaxy. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And, and that's why sometimes, you know, when, like, I gave a talk last month um, at the, the Modern Web Conf called CSS Can Do That. And the whole time I was giving the talk, you know, I was kind of, it kind of feels like, like you're hacking CSS to do something it's not meant to do. Mm. And I'm not really sure how I feel about that because these things are there in CSS. And, you know, you, you can do click events or you can simulate click events with CSS. It might not be the intended fun- functionality like in the spec, mm-hmm. but you can still do it. So I'm kind of torn between is this a hack or is this like the right way to do things, you know? Well, I guess I'm trying to think about what the upside is. Because I guess if, if you've got click behavior inside of a CSS style, now you can apply it to any uh, tag in, the, in a page. Now, what do you exactly mean by click behavior, simulating a click? Do you mean uh, raising an event when something happens? Or do you mean when somebody clicks on it, some style changes? Is that what you mean? Yeah, so, okay, there's a few ways to kind of simulate click events. Uh, The first way, the most common way, is people call it the checkbox hack. Um, So the checkbox hack is where you utilize uh, the checked pseudo class. So, you know, whenever a checkbox is checked, the there's a colon checked pseudo class that gets activated. Yeah. So when that is activated, then you can use um, adjacent and general sibling selectors to select elements that are obviously siblings of that checkbox and do things. So, you know, when you click a checkbox, um, let's say you have a div that's a sibling of that checkbox that's displayed none by default. Well, when you click the checkbox and, and then it's checked, you can just use CSS and, you know, target like colon checked plus using, you know, the general sibling, sibling selector plus that div and then, and then set it to display block or change your styles like that. So that's at its at the at its simplest form. That's how it works. Um, and with checkboxes, you know, checkboxes have corresponding labels. So we all know that styling checkboxes is is kind of hard. I mean, you can't really. There's browsers are very inconsistent mm-hmm. with styling checkboxes. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead, what we do is a lot of times you just completely hide the checkbox and just use the corresponding label. And then we can do things um, like with a label, we could then add um, before and after pseudo elements to it. We can kind of make our own like checkbox. If that's all you, if, if all you want to do is create like a form checkbox, you can easily do that by completely hiding the checkbox and just using the label. Um, hmm. I mean, that, uh, yeah, that's yeah. kind of at its simplest form, but, but taking that further... You can do things. Um, I'll, I'll share this um, link with you guys the, to the, the slides of my the presentation I gave. Okay, for sure. But yeah, so I basically built a demo site that has a lot of functionality that appears like you know it, it's built with JavaScript, but it's all uh, CSS. Um, so the first thing I did was uh, like you you could take an unordered list or. It doesn't have to be an unordered list. It could just be you know, a list of items, like list of anchors. Um, and in the middle of those anchors, let's let's say you only want to show like five of them, right? Um, and then you want to have like a more button that when you click more, it kind of slides down, and then you can see the rest. And then you can click less, you know, and it'll slide back up, and it'll only show the first five. Um, so that's actually super easy with CSS by just throwing in a checkbox and a label in in the middle of the list. Mm-hmm. And then targeting all of the um, elements that come after it. And then just, you know, like setting them to display block. And then when you click it again, setting it to display not. Right. So that hides and shows things. But obviously right. you, could, you could do other things with styles too. Like you could, you could apply a different style to something, right? Yeah, absolutely. You can do, I mean, any, any CSS properties any CSS you, can, property. you can add. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like um, the way I typically would do these things in JavaScript is, you know, I would just toggle a class because right. I like to, I like to give most of the, the power to CSS, if you will, like for, for anything that needs changed visually, hmm. I'll just add a class. And then on that new class, I'll, you know, give it the, however I'm manipulating it, um, 
you know, maybe it's like sliding it down. And in that case, you know, you change the min height and give it a transition. And then you rely on CSS for the transition in that case. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of doing it the same way, but without that toggle class method in JavaScript, you're just using CSS. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, in pushing this, like there's a lot of things, if you really think about it, that you can do with this method. Um, for instance, on my blog, trevin.co, I have a um, off-canvas menu mm -hmm. if you downsize the browser. And believe it or not, that's completely all CSS. Um, the click event is just um, a hidden checkbox. And then like the little hamburger icon, you know hamburger icon yep. is very is very um, popular for to denote there's more content to be shown. So that's actually a label. And then clicking that label um, using a sibling selector, it, it targets um, a yeah. sibling div, which in this case is like the off-canvas div. And by default, that off-canvas div or whatever element it is has like a, a negative right value, mm. right? So it's completely off the page. But then when you target it by saying, hey, input type, checkbox, you know, colon checked, and then, and then plus section or div, whatever the element is. So when you're targeting it, when it's open, you just remove that right value or give the right value back to zero. Mm -hmm. So now it's on the page. And did you do the animation with, uh, with CSS as well? You know, when you click the hamburger icon, it just sort of expands. Yep. That's just a CSS three transition where you're just transitioning the right value or if you're using a margin, you can just transition the margin. Huh. What's fun about this, of course, is you can just view source and look at this code. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of what I mean when I say, you know, click events with CSS. Sure. Uh, so another way to uh, create click events in CSS is, is with the target uh, pseudo class. So target, it's a CSS3 pseudo property. If somebody doesn't isn't familiar with that term, pseudo class or pseudo property for CSS, what does that mean exactly? Okay, so a pseudo class is, um, let's say you have like an A tag, right, for an anchor. Mm -hmm. and then you do A colon hover. So that colon hover um, changes the styles when the link is hovered over, right? Mm -hmm. So that hover is considered a pseudo class. Okay. Um, other pseudo classes, I mean, your standard would be like um, visited right. um, for links, um, you know, stuff like that. And then target is also a new one. Um, and then a, a pseudo element is basically, um, it's another element created on an element. Um, it, it's denoted the same way, except it's with a double colon. So um, if you have like a div and you want to say create something before the div, you can use the uh, before or after pseudo elements by just saying mm -hmm. div colon colon before. Um, it's it's used a lot with um, combined with the content property mm -hmm. uh, because the content property um, basically you can just give it a string. Uh, so it, it's used a lot with like if you have a list for instance um, and you want one particular one to have you know something in front of it, maybe a bullet, maybe you're creating a custom bullet list, you could use a before pseudo element. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that that's what I mean by pseudo elements and classes. Okay. Uh, yeah. So then the the target pseudo class um, essentially it's activated on an element uh, when the URL hash is the same as an element's ID. You sort of think of it as an event handler. Yeah. Right. There you go. An event handler that can only set uh, CSS properties. Yeah. yeah. Only when the the URL, you know, in the browser is a certain hash. So like mm -hmm. if you had, you know, localhost 3000 slash um, hash hello, um, and then you had a, a div somewhere on your page that had an ID of hello, you could then with CSS say, you know, hash hello colon target and give it special styles. Mm -hmm. They will only be shown when, you know, when the URL matches that ID. And so that's kind of, it's kind of simple at its core, but you can do the exact same things that you can with a checkbox hack. Um, and even some more in some cases uh, with this target pseudo class. What I like about this demo, if you look at it and view the source, not right click, but you have a thing to show, you know, show the slide essentially when it shows the source. Yeah. The, uh, the HTML is just 
pure and easy to read. And I like that. But uh, let's jump into that in a minute. Right now, I got to tell you about coder camps. Coder camps are changing the way people learn .NET and JavaScript. If you've been learning .NET on your own, these guys can help you get the skills you need to get hired in just nine weeks. They've been around for over a year. The results are amazing. Everyone who's graduated has been hired within 90 days. And now they've made it even better by letting students attend camp online. So check them out at CoderCamps.com. Yeah, I was just saying, and, and Richard, you probably agree that, I mean, that's some clean, I mean, granted, it's just a, you know, a section and a div with, you know, essentially a list of things, but it's very easy to understand and read. Yeah, and what's cool about it is, I mean, we're using CSS to do all of the heavy lifting, you know, like the HTML can stay very clean Yeah. Uh, as long as you, you know, give it a class. I typically don't like selecting just elements. I'll, you know, give it a class to kind of be modular in that way. Mm. Um, but that's all you need on your HTML. Uh, the other thing, though, that you kind of have to be mindful about is that it does matter the order of your markup just because, I mean, this is a major flaw. I guess I don't know if it's a flaw of CSS because CSS really isn't meant to do this. Um, but you can only select um, or you can only target and select elements in the DOM that are that are siblings, right? With CSS, you can't go up the DOM, so you can't select elements that come before. Hmm. So just being mindful about where where your elements are in the DOM is is really all you have to worry about um, on the markup side of things. And, and CSS is you know takes care of the rest. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at the source code for your homepage, and there are a few JavaScript references. Obviously, you have jQuery and things in it, but I don't think there's actually any blocks of script in this page at all. Uh, yeah, you're right. I'm I'm using the um the Ghost blogging platform, right? So I'm just using a couple plugins for um, like to calculate the reading time of articles, um, and then the the syntax highlighter. So yeah, that's it. And I love that, you know, you've got the responsive design so that you go to the hamburger icon, but it remembers whether you had the about me popped in or not, even when you go to a larger screen size. So, I mean, it's just the applied style is still an applied style. Right. I think that'd be actually different behavior from what if you'd done this in JavaScript, because it's you've got this implicit state machine from a style application. Yeah, I mean, with JavaScript, you would... I mean, you'd have to detect like the window height and say, you know, right. or window width and say, you know, at this certain width, remove that class. Yeah. Or else if it was open at small screens and you size up, it'd still be there. But right. yeah, another thing too that um, I did on, on my blog is uh, if you notice, and this is a, a common pattern on off-canvas navigation, um, when, when you, especially on your phone, you know, like if you're, uh, if you tap the menu to be slid over, it slides over and then you can then you can click in the content that's slid over like in that off canvas menu you can click in there and stuff and it won't close um, sometimes you can even scroll up and down it won't close but if you click anywhere else in, in the body of the page anywhere that's not off canvas including the little uh, hamburger icon but also including the rest of the page it'll close the off canvas interesting so Yep. This was Very actually cool. one of the trickiest parts of doing off canvas because, you know, at first I got it working with, um, with just like the label that the label, which is the hamburger. So just kind of toggling that, you know, just toggles the check pseudo class and that's fine and everything. But when it's open, I wanted to be able to, you know, tap anywhere else on the body and close it. Um, so what I did is th this, um, brings in another, um, CSS3 property called um, pointer events. And so what I did is I have two labels for one checkbox. So there's two labels for the checkbox that controls the opening and closing, right? The right. one label is styled like the hamburger. The other label is positioned absolutely um, to the top and left of zero. And then it has a width and a height of 100%. Um, and I think I may have set the Z index like to one. So it's basically it, it sits above everything else. It's kind of like a ghost layer. Like you can't see it, but it's there. And clicking it will activate that checkbox. It'll uncheck it and check it because it's a label of it. Right. So um, what you have to do though is that, you know, since it checks that checkbox and it sits on top of your content, if you were to click anywhere, like click a button on your page, well, it's going to check that 
that uh, checkbox and it's going to bring over and open your off canvas when you really didn't want it to. So um, what you do is set the pointer events property. Um, and if you set it to pointer events none by default, that allows you to essentially click through it. It's just like an invisible layer, but you can click through it. Hmm. Uh, and so clicking through that, um, you know, when you actually click it, the click is going to like bubble down right through it. And then you're going to be able to click on the rest of the elements in your page. Um, and then, so, uh, utilizing again, a general or a adjacent sibling selector, when the checkbox is open, you just reset that pointer events to its default state. So then at that point, when you click it, it will activate. You can't click through it anymore. It will activate the checkbox. And then it'll slide close to the off canvas. That is very cool. Does that, that make sense? Cool. I'm just looking at all the behavior going on here. Click it away going, there's no code. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is code. It's CSS. Yeah. Yes. It's just a different kind of code. Declarative and it's a, code. It's a very declarative code. Yeah. So it's easy to apply this to different things. I'm actually, I actually ended up in your blog post about CSS approach to tabs and was kind of in awe of that as well. Yeah, I was just going to touch on that too. So um, tabs is something that uh, I think, I'm sure you could probably do it with checkboxes, um, but the approach that I've been using is with uh, the target pseudo class. Right. Um, and, you know, essentially... You have to lay it out um, in obviously the correct way with your HTML. Um, you have three tabs and then like three content panes. Um, utilizing the uh, target pseudo class, um, basically whenever you click a tab, which is an anchor, um, mm -hmm. it, that anchor has an href, right? And that href has to match up um, with its corresponding tab. And when you do that, um, you, you can change the styling. So by default, if they're all displayed none, they're all you know hidden. Um, when the correct one matches the URL hash, you can just display it block or do whatever you want. Maybe maybe you know instead of displaying none, display block, you use like a min height zero and then a min height of like two hundred pixels. Right. And in that way, um, you can transition it because you can't. Unfortunately, you can't transition dis the display property with CSS. So, but you can transition like min height. So that will give it kind of the slide down effect. Like if you were using jQuery, you could use like slide toggle. Right. So you could you you don't want that abrupt switch. I mean, that's the problem with display none. It's just boop, it's gone. Right. Exactly. And you, and you want it to be back. I do like, and the HTML is still really clean. Everything the con inside the di content div tag is all the content. The rest is just, it's a list box. It, it, it's a list of items. Yep. So yeah. in this article that that you linked to, um, I, maybe we can just link to it in the show notes. But Absolutely. Uh, it's done. So there, there's one trick. I mean, I guess the biggest trick of this to actually make this tab approach something that you'd actually use on a site rather than just, oh, that's cool. CSS, CSS can do that, whatever. Mm -hmm. To actually make it useful, um, what you have to do is you have to take the first list item um, and you have to move it to the end. Yeah, I noticed that you had it that way and I was wondering why. Yeah, so it's I'm going through this post because it was really complicated. <laughs> How I finally figured it out, honestly. Hey, well, while you're looking that up, Richard, you know what time it is? Oh, uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to click through the serious discussion pseudo class and let it bubble down the drain, sending in the clowns with a slide down effect. <laughs> 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 All right, you have to stay away from the CSS. No uh, CSS for no you. No CSS for you. One year. <laughs> uh, it's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, join the Telerik Kendo UI Q2 2014 release webinar, Enterprise UI for Every Device. This free webinar will showcase all the new goodies in the latest release, including data management and visualization additions, such as Gantt charts, pivot grids, and tree maps, mobile widgets support for AngularJS, and lots more. Register now at Telerik.com slash Kendo-UI slash release webinar. Awesome, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Bob Price. Congratulations, Bob. Yes. Golf clap for you. 
Very good. Bob just won the DevCraft collection from Telerik. That's a whole bunch of goodness in one box that they do. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we give away great stuff like this to one lucky member. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one member picked at random, but you got to register to win Richard, this will be the third year that we do this. Yes. It's coming up too, isn't it? It's coming up. It's already September. It's not that far away. It's the probably the highlight of my years being able to... You like being called a Nigerian prince that makes you happy? I just love getting the response, <laughs> you know, sending that email and getting the response. No way, I think, is the response every yeah, it's time. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> my wife told me not to answer it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, um, Trevin, we like to ask our guests... If you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? Oh, man. Well, with the uh, popular release of this new watch, I'm going to say that, that would be top of my list. So that Apple Watch, but I'm still on the iPhone like 4S, so I'd have yeah, to Yeah, you're going to need an iPhone well. 6. So I got to have both of those, which I don't know. That'd probably be like 1000 bucks, man, because... Well, I presume itself. you'd get the 128 gig, right? Because you could. Yeah. So that's, I think that's 500 bucks. Would you get the six or the six plus? You know, I think I get the six because the six is already bigger than the four and the five. Mm. Yeah. And the six S is just gigantic, I'd say. <laughs> Ginormous. It's a 1080p screen and yeah, five and I mean, a half inches. Like it's insane. Hmm. I have a buddy that has. You know, I don't know what kind. It's an Android phone that, you know, it's like they call the phablet. The, the phone. Yeah, like a <laughs> yeah. Samsung Note? Yeah. Maybe, I, like I don't know what it is, but he carries it in his pocket because it can, but it barely fits in his pocket. You know, I mean, it's like you're carrying around a little, little like moleskin journal, but it's your phone. Right. And it's almost too hard to use just one hand on it. You know, you got to use two hands. So it's just like, man, why don't you, I don't know, that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, it sort of made sense to me that Apple made a bigger phone and then also made a watch to go with it. So you don't have to take the phone out anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, I was, I, we were talking about this um, in our Slack channel at work. Like, uh, I was very interested to hear how he was going to, um, like, if he's going to come out with some magical new technology for um, talking, like, because I was like, wait a minute, with this watch, you've got to have a phone, right? And we were kind of going back and forth, like, oh, maybe you don't need your phone. Um, but if you had a watch and you didn't have to have a phone to connect to it, mm-hmm. that would be bomb. I mean, that yeah. would be, I, I would ditch my phone for that. I would just use a watch, you know? Yeah, but that is not how it works. I'm also wondering if it ties up the Bluetooth channel. Cause so my question is, could you wear the watch, keep the phone in your pocket and have a Bluetooth headset on? We'll call that the full douche. Uh, <laughs> Because then, yeah, you know, you you should be able to see an incoming call on your watch and then go, okay, answer that. You've got your headset on to be able to talk. That's pretty interesting. That watches start at three fifty, but that's going to be like the steel case, the exercise model with the plastic band. I got to think when you get to the fancy one with all the extras, it's going to be a five or six hundred dollar watch. I have a public service announcement for all the guys out there thinking about getting all this stuff. Get a girlfriend first, all right? <laughs> this is very important. I'm also concerned that uh, of the battery life, because they really didn't talk about it, yeah, they, right. whether or not it's really going to make it through a whole day, because you know it's got all the health sensor stuff on it. You want to leave it on all the time, but it's going to have to be charged. So, yeah. But I, I think when you're done, you're well over $1,000. But that's not five grand, dude. You got to spend more money. Yeah, I know. All right. So my other thing <laughs> is I need. I'm an Apple fanboy. I need... I need to get a Thunderbolt display, so I'm going to add that to my uh, my fifteen hundred bucks. Yep, yep. I need that because right now I've got I've got an iMac, and then so I bought this or I had this twenty one point five inch iMac, and I got this MacBook Air. And I'm like, okay, perfect. I'm going to use my iMac as an external display. Right. Well, it turns out my iMac is one year older. Oh, oh no! So it doesn't have a Thunderbolt connection and. I'm an idiot, and I got it anyways, and now it doesn't work, so I'm stuck working on this 13-inch MacBook Air or <laughs> an iMac, and then I have to, like, switch my files, and it's just... Hmm. So, anyways. Well, and if you go to a Mac Pro, you're going to blow the budget for sure, because I think they basically start about three grand. A Mac mm-hmm. Pro, yeah. 
Yeah. That's just but, you know, you could go get a new MacBook and load it up fairly decently with the big Thunderbolt display. That's all Apple all the time. But, you know, most of the time with Apple stuff, 5000 bucks is just not enough. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, so that's only like, say, 2500 I would spend the rest on Arduino stuff, man. Ah, okay. love it. Yeah, this, I would. You, I, can, uh, you can buy a lot of Arduino for that. Yeah. Yeah, man. yeah no, I've been, I got a couple Arduinos this, this summer. And my goal this summer, I was going, I, I told myself and I told everybody around me, I'm like, I'm going to do this. I was going to build a remote controlled lawnmower. I love it. I saw some dude do it online, you know, and he blogged about it. Like, yeah, I'm going to do this. And then I get, I get to actually looking at him like, there's no way. Like, this is going to take way too long, (laughs) especially when my background (laughs) is not in like traditional programming. Right. Man, that would be tough. But, anyways, that's still kind of a goal of mine. I think that would be super killer if you could have somebody mow a robot mow your lawn. Well, you can buy off the shelf lawn mowing robots. Yeah. They're they're not remote control, they just do it themselves. Yeah, but those are like five, ten thousand dollars. Well, I just gave you five grand, dude. Oh man, you're right. <laughs> maybe, I need, maybe I need a scratch. You could always hire the neighborhood kid to to cut your lawn for twenty. Well, now bucks. you're just ruining the fun. <laughs> just saying, yeah. sometimes technology isn't cost effective. Yeah, I mean, robot mowers run anywhere between fifteen hundred up to thirty five hundred bucks. And I wonder, you know, how well they'll actually mow your lawn. Is that it? Fifteen hundred dollars, you can get a robot lawnmower. Yeah, you can get a ro- you can get a robo mow for fifteen hundred bucks. The problem, and he, and you're right, I'm worried about the mow quality. Yep. The real problem I'm worried about is the mower walking away. Because <laughs> <laughs> the whole point is this thing should just mow the lawn itself. You don't have to be there. Like if I have to watch my mower, what am I doing? Right, right. <laughs> but you know, when there's a two thousand dollar machine driving around on your lawn, when your neighbors are like, "Dude, <laughs> yeah, you gotta have the right kind of lawn too." All right. Well, we've totally destroyed this conversation. Now we should probably get back to it. <laughs> I, I I think I want to just launch on one question because we and we sort of danced on this at the beginning here, which was, yeah, okay, CSS can do this, but should you? Like, is this actually better than coding in JavaScript? Oh man, it opens up a huge debate. I think. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I initially say, you know, yeah, if you can do something with CSS then do it with CSS and, and don't rely on JavaScript. For There's a few reasons, I guess. The first reason is, so a lot of, think of it like this, a lot of guys that are using CSS um, are kind of like, like their development expertise is kind of where I'm at, where I'm an, a front-end kind of designer guy. Um, yep. But I, like I, know, I know JavaScript, but I'm not a JavaScript engineer. So right. I tend to rely quite a bit on jQuery. Um, for things, because most of the times, you know, when I'm doing things with JavaScript, it's like presentational things, right? right. So it's like adding classes or, you know, stuff like that. And, um, so that's one thing you no longer have to require jQuery. That's cool to actually eliminate libraries saying something. Yep. I just keep coming back to the analogy of, of XAML, you know, if you were to ask Billy Hollis, you know, why would you do something in XAML that you could do in code? The answer seems obvious, right? Because you're you want code to be reusable, you don't want it to have anything really to do with design, and you know you keep the presentation separate from the code. I mean, but in in JavaScript, you don't. I mean, you have to sort of uh, apply the right patterns to to separate code. Do you know what I'm saying? But it doesn't always work out that way, especially if you're doing a lot of manipulation of the DOM and manipulation of uh, of visual styles. Yeah. This is a question of what is a visual style and what is should actually be code. Like the click event to me. Actually, your demonstration, Trevin, with the hamburger icon is a great example of that. That looks like it ought to be code. It's clearly an action of clicking. Right. But it's also a style, especially in responsive design, yeah. that it's how you want to present information. Yeah, I mean, that kind of crosses the line. I mean, that is that is like functionality. I mean, the user clicks it. And then it does something, you know, most of the times with CSS, you can't really do that. Uh, I mean, unless you're using like CSS animations, but even with the animations, a lot of times you have to use JavaScript to start those animations, you know? Right. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, it, it kind of crosses the line between like being visual, presentational and actually being you know, functional. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I think there's not a ton. I mean, like the click events thing is really the only like functionality that CSS provides. I mean, 
you, you know, you can't submit forms with CSS or anything no. like that. You don't want to be able to navigate to a link. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. The, the performance, I mean, I've, people have, you know, kind of asked about the performance gains. Uh, obviously, if you're eliminating jQuery, which, I mean, that's kind of, if it's a small site, maybe you could. Like for my site, for instance, I, it's a small site, you know, I eliminated jQuery. Well, no, I didn't because I have <laughs> I have my other plugins. But if I didn't have my plugins, I would eliminate jQuery. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, you know, more often than not, you're probably going to still use jQuery or some sort of library. So I don't know that that argument is that valid. What about reusability? You know, to further to Carl's point, it's like, is this code is style more reusable than JavaScript? <clears throat> I, I mean. You can have reusable JavaScript just as you can have yeah. reusable CSS, right? It's a hard thing to ask without actually doing going in and doing like hardcore performance tests. Maybe the answer is like most answers in this business, which is it depends. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, I look at your tab solution and say that to me reads as cleaner code than what it would take to do that in JavaScript. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is a behavior, and would you like to reuse that behavior on something else? Well, so there, I guess I'm not going to bash on this method now, but I will, I'll, I'll be honest about kind of the downfalls, right? right? So with JavaScript, if you were to just simply add a class, you know, with a tab thing, you click a tab, it's just going to give it like an active class to that list item. Um, in your CSS, then you can create a rule and say, hey, you know, dot active, and then if you're using like, um, you know, SAS or Stylus, mm -hmm. uh, you can nest your styles pertaining just to that active class within it, right? And they're nice and organized in that way. However, with CSS, or I mean, with doing it the CSS way, like with target, you don't get that because there is no containing class that you can kind of nest things in. Um, granted, you know, you could... It, it does fall under like a selector, like using, you know, colon checked or colon target plus the element and then put all your styles in there. So it's kind of the same way, but you, you have to write it a, a little bit longer and you kind of have to think about it a little mm. bit more when you're yeah. writing your CSS. So I don't know, that's kind of a downfall, I guess. It's not, it's not as separated, um, you know, your because fun your functionality lies right in your CSS. Right. Right. But the thing is, I mean, once I've got that glob of CSS working, there's nothing in this CSS, and I'm looking at your example on your blog, where the, in the styles information itself, it's number of tabs or even, you know, any of the structure of it per se. That's still in the HTML. You're just marking up these div tags as content within these list items that are marked as tabs. Yeah, that's true. Like it seems to me really coherent. I can read this. I know what the ta the labels are. I know where the content lives. You know what effect you'd get here, and you you know you only have to solve the CSS problem for me. Certainly, once that CSS works, I really don't want to touch it again. It scares me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So to take that tab functionality, stick it in a tabs style sheet, and just know that I can build a tab page anytime I want, referencing that style sheet. That makes me happy. Yeah, right. But you're a developer, Richard. Like we're all developers here. It's a different mindset when you're a designer. I think. No, I mean I've thought about too creating like um, like a mixin for this. I mean, I'm not really sure if that would be realistic, but you could maybe create a mixin for like tabs or a mixin for off canvas. Okay, define mixin. Uh, so mixin is like it, it. It's with SAS, um, the SAS preprocessor. Are you guys familiar with? SAS? Yeah, but you might as well say it anyway, just in case somebody isn't. Okay, so so SAS is a preprocessor. Um, I mean, there's there's tons of advantages to preprocessors. Um, one thing that they give you is the ability to use mixins, which is like a function in JavaScript. Um, it's just like a block of reusable code that mm -hmm. takes values um, and takes parameters. Um, and then you can also use variables. So SAS basically brings a lot of the functionality in like a real programming language to CSS. Obviously, it compiles. I mean, you, the browser doesn't see that. This is all just for your development sake. Right. I mean, when you're developing, it's just kind of a tool to make things go faster and easier yeah. um, because then it will compile it all into a .css file. But so anyways, that's mixing a mixin is just kind of reusable code. So 
It's funny. He, uh, you know, we would call them plugins in the developer world. Just the different, you know, like the pseudo class event, whatever object, different, uh, different names for the same kind of stuff. Yeah. It's like the subtle differences between blend and visual studio, you know, they're just a, a kind of the same ideas, but just different parlance. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. So, uh, tell us about some, can you show us, or can we link to some of the sites that you've built and done amazing things with CSS? Can you describe any of them? Uh, yeah. So out of pin to, um, the latest big redesign uh, that we did was the Zumba.com okay. site. Uh, we worked with Zumba's development team to um, code responsibly the, the front end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, they worked with a, an ad agency and, and gave us um, the mocks and, and all the guidelines and requirements and everything. And we kind of took that and made it an actual site. So uh, and this is the dance exercise site, Zumba? Yeah, Zumba. Hmm. But yeah, so this this was cool. I'm I'm, I'm proud of this. I, I was the the tech lead on this. Um, uh, Ted Waller and Aaron Aaron Bushnell were the other two uh, visual design engineers on it, and then hmm. uh, we had Tony Hedrick, who's a great uh, engagement manager. Um, but yeah, so this was this was kind of our, our latest big one. Um, this it's funny. So this ties directly into what, what I'm going to tell you next about this little framework that I created. Um, so with Zumba, we were it was a requirement by the client that we used Foundation um, by Zurb. Zurb creates this Foundation framework, which is a direct competitor to Bootstrap, to okay. Twitter Bootstrap. Um, so it's I mean it's basically it is pretty much the same thing as Bootstrap, except you know there's there's subtle differences. I mean, mm. um, Foundation has a little bit more in terms of like JavaScript components that you can use. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I hated it and I hate, <laughs> using, uh, I do, I hate using bootstrap and I hate using foundation. And so do the guys most, well, Ted and Aaron for sure that I work with, you know, we, we hate it because it's so opinionated. Um, mm. and there's a lot of bloat. It comes with a lot of things that you don't, you're never going to use. Um, and, you know, it's just, I don't know, we're, we're CSS guys. So we like looking at things, you know, we like looking at a Photoshop file and breaking it out in our own heads and saying, okay, this is how we need to lay this out. This is how we need to make it modular. So bring it on top of framework. It just, just like, you know, get out of here. Let us do our thing. I just love a little designer chest beating essentially. Yep. Like we're better than this because yep. <laughs> developers do it all the time. Just not here. Yeah. Right, it's like no, I can write, I can code up that class myself. I can build that thing myself. Yeah. I, I just yep. love hearing a designer with. It's like, hey, give me room to move. Artist at work. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's nice. So anyway, so that led me to create something called BearKit. Um, there were so after I've bashed on Foundation, I will say there were a few things that I liked about it. I didn't necessarily like you know how the components worked, but I liked how they were kind of their methodology behind it. And mainly, um, they had some JavaScript components like off canvas. So the Zumba off canvas is, is the foundations off canvas plugin. Um, but plugins like that can be instantiated via data attributes, um, on the HTML elements, which means, um, you don't ever really have to write JavaScript. If you don't want to, you just, you know, say, Hey, this element, I, I want it to be off canvas, so I'm going to give it a class of off canvas, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to give it a data attribute passing in whatever options I may need. Um, and so that frees you up to never have to write JavaScript if you don't want to for this particular thing. So I liked that, and I liked having a grid. Basically, those two things, and then other things like utility classes, I call them, um, things that are very reusable, like a class for like text aligning, like text on left, center, right, um, right, floating left and right, stuff like that. Like I like in a project, I like to just have those at my disposal so that I can just, I don't have to write a whole new selector for it. I can just say, you know, re- reuse kind of, kind of in an object oriented CSS manner. Um, so where can I get BearKit? Yeah. So BearKit, yeah. So BearKit is at a2labs.github.io slash BearKit. And I'll paste the link here. Um, but what BearKit is, is uh, it's bare. So, I mean, there is literally no styling other than 
um, display properties and maybe some positioning properties. Uh, it's basically, it's like a front-end project starter. I mean, it's meant to get things going quickly without any styles in your way, without any uh, you know opinions in your way. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And then it gives you, so basically the main CSS thing it gives you is the responsive grid, um, which is built mobile first. Um, if you, um, I, I have both stylus and SAS core files, so you can actually compile it yourself in your own project um, and get access to like the variables and the functions and mixins that I have. Nice. Um, and then uh, the JavaScript. So, you know, uh, I have like an accordion, some drop-down navigation, um, modals, off canvas. I have all of that. And all of this is very related to, uh, I mean, believe me, anything that could be done with um, CSS in this framework is done with CSS and not JavaScript. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. So, so yeah, it's very, uh, it's very CSS heavy. I mean, the things, times when I do need to use JavaScript, a lot of it was like adding classes and then huh. you know, styling the rest in CSS. But so anyways, yeah, this is, this is, um, the new framework we launched. Uh, it's a, a pen to labs project. Um, I've had some, some great help from the guys here and, I like the way that you call it a front-end project starter. That's, yeah. that's really cool because that's specific and you know exactly what that is and how it can help. Yep. You know, you don't, you, know, you don't take over the world. You just say, hey, this will get you started. Yeah. And IE8 Plus, too, which is great, great right. feature. Yeah, and it's more than just a starter, too. I mean, you're obviously going to use it for the, the whole time you're sure. coding the project. But, but that's the place you start. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very, very cool. I learned a lot today. Yeah, I'm totally excited to see someone who is passionate about CSS yep. as most folks are about JavaScript in this space and just showing it's it's got all this capability. Trevor, are you thinking of doing any Pluralsight videos? Or have you? Um, you know, I haven't really. Most of my... I, I like to write, so I've been trying to write quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I don't, never really thought about doing videos, I guess. Well, think about it. It's, it's uh, good stuff great stuff and uh thanks very much for talking to us today yeah thanks a lot for the opportunity Gift. oh you bet and uh, we'll see you next time on dotnet rocks .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 